welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl in the Gov, the podcast. Happy, happy Wednesday. I hope everyone had a lovely holiday weekend. How was, how was yours, Samantha? Did you do anything fun? What did I do this weekend? I discovered that I have a new ick. And this one, I don't know if I'm curious if you're going to be on board with this or not, is guys biking and not like, like on a beach bike, like that's still kind of hot. But like biking in the full like little like professional biker outfit in their little street like, cyclers peggy yes yeah like i i saw one and this is happened to be right after one of my other friends sent me this video of this dude on a horse and both like she was like my new ick is like guys riding like learning to ride horses which i also agree with there's something like so very like well it depends if he's like a hot big old cowboy then like yeah oh this is not let me tell you (laughs) if he doesn't want to do it no (laughs) no but like the biking like there's something also so culty about the guys that like wake up at like 5 a.m to go on they're like they're like burning man people but like biking it's like a they're also category of the same when driving like the way they just like bike at like 20 miles per hour in the middle of the road like doesn't don't even care about cars and obviously like they're thinking about their safety which like should come first but like it just road cycling to me has always just been annoying because i'm like so annoying there should there's paths for this there's trails there's it's like why do you have to take up the entire like tiny two-lane road that i'm trying to use to get to who knows where it also so makes I've me so nervous a as a driver like yeah. i'm gonna like what if one of them wipes out and i accidentally hit them like it gives me so much anxiety i can't tell you in addition to the fact that they've made it their entire personality it is <laughs> i actually dated a guy during covid that was very into it and like you know, when you're like those things, you're like, maybe, you know, this is more different, but like, you know, our differences bring us together. But realistically, it's like Samantha Lee Cantor, you literally refused to get on any form of bicycle after landing in Poison Ivy a few years ago. Oh, by the way, not speaking of this, speaking of this, oh no. when I was in D.C. like two weeks up, two weeks ago, yeah. when I got done with my meeting, I had like a flight, like I had to go to the airport, like two hours after so I had this like kind of two hour block to like do something by myself and I got on one of those like just like uber bikes or whatever lift bikes and I the ground that I covered I covered the entire ground you and I did in like the span of 30 minutes you guys this is because I, I was in DC and there's all these people like okay. biking by us and we were walking my feet were not okay after after Sam and I like exploring like we went to like Lincoln Memorial we went over to Capitol Hill we went to the White House like and that's like it's all in one place but it's they're far from it's each far. other like there's yeah. like multiple multiple like football fields long and my feet were not okay when Sam and I went and I was like Sam why don't we just like take one of these bikes and we can like get literally see everything and right now like and we had mm-hmm. to like pick and choose what we were going to see because Sam would not get on a fucking bike and when I was there I was just like I hate everything like in 30 in 30 minutes okay. with time to spare and I was just thinking about you and I was like she needs to get her shit together in the bike department because good good god 
No, it definitely does limit me in like some very like random circumstances, like specifically like very like like beach towns where like there's only bikes, like certain things. But I also like as a New Yorker, I will walk anywhere. I will walk like I could walk 30 miles straight and be having a great time. Like, but you do have a point. You do have a point. I would like to say also at that point, I did not have health insurance and I now do. So I am I'm more open to risk. But at the point, literally four year old. Who am I kidding? So literally, I wasn't good at it when Joe I was all. 80-year-old Joe Biden bikes, okay? Oh, get it together. But why if, what if, hear me out, we have one of those bikes that has a sidecar. Yeah. <laughs> and you can buy There's usually like a cute <laughs> Labrador in it, but it's just going to be Sam. And you, I can see it. I can picture it. Also, I like can't wait. the merch. difference in skin tone between us right now. It's really, <laughs> really it's hard. It's so it's hard to deal with. If it makes you feel any better, I have a huge stripe on the middle of my stomach. Like it is like is that natural? Wacky Tan? wild. It's natural, but it's like literally because of like the workout sets that I've been work- like wearing, and it is so bizarre because I honestly have a weird hasn't been burn on your neck area. This and it, okay, this is what's strange. It's been like this for days. Yeah, like, like your collarbones like, are almost like wow. it's just like the neck to to chest right, color coloring. Well, so head for, to I, head I to YouTube. To see Sam's farmer's tan, my paleness, my camo hat that I'm wearing because we're taking back camo. It's cute. The liberals are taking back camo. Taking um, back camo. And I honestly, yeah. I will say this. I felt like we were taking back camo within like at least the last year because mm-hmm. camo became really popular, especially then with like Coastal the cargo pant. Totally. So just friends. like thousand percent. She made, she really, she worked her magic and love her for it. And not that I know that she's like fully liberal. I would assume she's generally progressive. But I've been trying to figure that out actually for months. Like embarrassingly, she's probably just apolitical, but I would assume she has some progressive values. Like she probably believes women have like the right to choose what to do with their bodies. She probably supports gay people. So there's I'm sure there's some progressive values at least in there, but nonetheless. Honestly, that would be like an interesting scale to have of like how like percentage of times we guess if someone's like a uh, liberal or a conservative and like how many times do you get it right yeah just saying and who well, else we're guessing on but just a thought our random aside we have an incredible episode today with a state rep from a state that we have literally not talked about before and we are very 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 excited too so samantha will you do the honors and introduce this guest please so we're talking to Hawaii State Rep Janae Capella. And what's wild about this is we actually had booked this episode with her way before what went down in Maui. Like way before we were so curious about thinking about climate change and mm-hmm. policy in Hawaii at the state level and the efforts around trying to get a state level Green New Deal there. And we're like, okay, like so curious, like what that looks like, obviously. Or maybe not obviously, you get to see in this conversation what that looks like versus in a state like Hawaii, that's an island state versus something like a California or New York, et cetera. So nonetheless, that's where we're going to go with this episode back in the day. And so happens that just everything kind of roiled in one. So it's a good combination conversation of talking about climate, talking also about politics of Hawaii, because like, like many said, like we hadn't covered this state from a political angle at all yet and this is like our what is like the first 
why is the only thing coming to mind the virgin episode girl thank you you're welcome thank you can you tell me like can you tell that i've been watching too much like pirate related tv because it's just like yeah I don't want to get like it. Outer I don't Banks get is you. Like, I don't even want to. Oh, I was like, I don't want to get you going. I was like, what pirate oh, show? God. Outer Banks. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. Like, and they're all like, oh, the map. You know, and so anyways, the terminology is really clearly top right. Anyways, this episode is all about Hawaii from politics as a whole to climate specifically to talking about what's been going on in Maui and how people can help. So it's a little bit of everything and super fun we had such an awesome conversation so we're excited for you guys to jump in so without further ado here is Y state rep capella hey guys popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter this weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items resources and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox save it share it and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of pros custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing pre-mixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. 
But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girlandgov. All right. Welcome to Girl in the Gulf podcast. You are our first Hawaii rep that is on the show. So we're so excited. Like Yay. the amount of things we have to get into too. But to start things off, we got to get into how you got into politics in the first place. You know, what made you decide Trump for office? That's always a tale and a story. And we got to know yours. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I've been in office now for three years, going into my fourth my fourth year. And I, I often forget like, what 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 brought it about and and why I decided to to run? But I try to remind myself often of and go back to that why because I think the why is always so important. I'm the first woman, Native Hawaiian, and person born and raised in my district ever represented in the state house. So also an introduction. Hi everyone that's listening. My name is Janae <laughs> Capella. I represent the fifth district in Hawaii State House. So being being the first of many. I, a big part of it for me was about representation. I had mm-hmm. looked around my district and started getting involved in politics, mostly as an advocate. So I come from this very activist background and I try to bring that into my work now as a legislator. And I actually started working in women's rights. So I ran a nonprofit for many years dedicated to ending sex trafficking here in the state of Hawaii. Through My nonprofit was called Unite. And it was mostly about educating students who are often the targets of traffickers on how to how to just educate themselves, their family, and their friends on the dangers of human trafficking and how they can protect themselves. So I started working on that at the legislature and trying to get trying to get stronger protections for survivors, but also to try and get education resources for students. And it was such an uphill battle. Like every little thing was such a struggle. And I was like, literally, we're trying to help people who are enslaved. Mm-hmm. This is modern day slavery that we're talking about. And we're trying to help young people protect themselves so that they can continue to thrive and enjoy their lives. Why is this so difficult? So from yeah. there, I started started working at the legislature. I got a job as a legislative aide. And, and then I saw and I heard things at the legislature that made me so disappointed. Things like that other representatives would say that were like, go and delete those teacher emails because they're covering up the inbox or can you shut the door because people are chanting too loud. And I was so disappointed as someone who grew up in a community that really struggles economically and having grown up with a single mom and living off of food stamps and social services just to get by. And that was my upbringing to meet these people who have all of the power in our state to make a change for those vulnerable community members, for them to not use that power for something that's positive was so disheartening. So I decided, well, if these people can run for office, then I can run for office and make a change. So for me, that's really what brought it about. 
I That's amazing that. and iconic. I think too, it's so interesting. We were talking to Freddie Reese, who is the executive director of that last recently, she came on the show and obviously talking about forced marriage and child marriage and how insane it was to get like something that seems so obvious. And so like, it comes out of, I don't know, like 1450 or before, like, how could this thing still be you know, in existence in 2023 and that uphill battle. And sometimes it's sort of like that. I feel like change your mind. You're like, you know what, if they're not going to change it, I'm going to do it myself. Like get me in the door. I'll do it. And it feels like that's very much like your path. You're like, okay, well, like if you guys are like going to just stand in my way, see ya. And I'm coming. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's one of the other things, too, is talking about like representation really matters. And for me, a big catalyst and an inspiration for me has and always will be AOC. Right. And she talks about that representation matters to be from your community, to be to have drink in the water and mm-hmm. to have felt that struggle. I think we often in politics, we don't look at people's lived experiences or we discount lived experiences, which at the end of the day, those lived experiences are the things that really allow someone to to change the system because you're not just reading about the system. You've experienced it in a way that is so raw and so real that you know the real gap. So to be able to bring that into a, into the legislative space and into the policy space, which is something that I've really strived to do, but also something that I try to do through the Working Families Caucus in the state of Hawaii, the, um, which I have the privilege of chairing, bringing in those, those individuals who have lived experience, who know firsthand the struggle of living in this state, which is beautiful, but outrageously expensive to be able to to share their voice because they're the people that should be helping helping us lead policy regardless mm-hmm. of a degree. Yes, absolutely. Representation matters. Love it. Shout out from the rooftops over and over. Well, curious to what the political landscape of, of Hawaii looks like. Is it red? Is it purple? Is it blue? Again, you are our first guest from the state. So we're excited to kind of hear all about the politics of, of Hawaii. Yeah, well, I think it's hard for me as a as a progressive legislator. I, I would call us purple. And for someone who's working on the inside, I would definitely call us purple. However, I think when you compare us to southern states or other states across the continent, we're definitely blue. But when you look at the policy itself and, and what we're able to pass, I mean, we have a Democratic supermajority. And it took us 10 years to pass a living wage bill in one of the most expensive states in the entire country. So we still don't have paid sick leave. We don't have paid family leave. All of these really important issues we don't we don't have. And these are core portions of the Democratic of the Democratic Party. And yet with the Democratic supermajority, we still are not there. And we have colleagues that often argue against them that call themselves Democrats. So I would definitely call us purple. We have a lot of Hawaii's historically has been such a blue state. I say that in quotation marks for the people who are listening and not watching on YouTube, that you have to run as a Democrat in order to win, really. We have four Republicans in the House and one Republican in the Senate. So you don't you don't often see people running as Republicans and winning, but you definitely see these Republican values that are being upheld by unfortunately Democrats. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of the layout here. Yeah, honestly, I, like I'm in California and we see the same thing, especially at the state legislature, because it's like Republicans can't really get elected um, in some of these districts. And so like people sometimes literally front as a Democrat, get in there and then are kind of obstructionist and in progress and in change. So it's interesting to see that, you know, across different state legislatures as well. Yeah, I think as as a as a progressive, one of the things I it's odd to say, but I think having a stronger Republican party 
where they are actually able to, I don't want to say get elected because it's not like we need more Republicans, but <laughs> from my from my point of view, but for them to be able to be able to hold their own in, in a way where you have these people who are, I know, is running in their actual party and not in the Democratic Party, because then it just makes things so much harder to pass. I'd rather have a Republican who is going to be up front than a Democrat who's going to lie to my face and then vote the other direction. Totally. Totally. It's that transparency element. It's like, okay, can we like just see, like show us our cards? And obviously it's like politics, like there's some shady business that we, there's always going to be someone that's being a little sus, but like, at least if you have a better idea of like, okay, you're on this side of the line and you're on this side of the line, you can make something of it. And I think it's probably easier to formulate a compromise when you literally see where people are at, as opposed to the sort of in-between and business that happens. So it's also crazy too. Like we have states like Minnesota and Michigan that have these like really small majorities that have just pushed so much progressive policy through in this last year. And it's yeah. like, they have these tiny majorities and they're making it happen. So then when you see the super majority situation, you're like, what's going on here? Like it just blows your mind. <laughs> totally. It is bonkers. But I'm super curious going back to Hawaii, like what are the issues that are the most prevalent? I know like that can be a whole rainbow of things, but like if there were like two issues that are like top of mind of people that live there, what like what comes to mind? Nice rainbow I, reference, by the way. Yes, yes. Well, what I would definitely say that the, the two top issues, I can name a, a bunch, but the two top issues that I would definitely say are top of mind for people here in Hawaii is the high cost of living. It's outrageous to live here. We have one of the highest costs of living in the entire nation and for a very long time, one of the lowest minimum wage. So this this balance for folks has been unbearable. So you see a lot of people that grew up in Hawaii or are native Hawaiian, have roots here, generational ties that are leaving our state to go and live in other places because they just can't afford to live here. You're working two or three jobs just to get by. And it's just, it's not possible to survive off of that. I think from that, one of the things that happens is, is we have this really terrible over-tourism, which it's hard because in many ways, Hawaii thrives off of tourism. That's our big economic driver. And we haven't, even through coming out of the pandemic, been able to diversify away from tourism in other sectors, sectors of our economy. So you're leaving people stranded working in this extractive industry um, because tourism, it's beautiful. Yes, people want to come to Hawaii, but tourists come here and all they do is take whether it's our resources, our natural resources, our housing. And that's probably the second part of the issue with the cost of living is that you can't afford to buy a home. Our average home price here in the state is $1.2 million. And it's just, it's it's terrible. So you have, on top of that, you have, whether they're tourists or foreign investors that are coming from the continent or globally, they can buy it 60% higher than a local family ever could. So they're coming in, they're buying our housing supply, multiple homes, and then they're renting them on vacation rental platforms, whether it's VRBO or Airbnb. And that not only takes away from our housing, it also drives up the cost of our actual housing market. So for me in my district, I represent the portions of the Kona Coast all the way around that wraps around Hawaii Island to chaos. So just outside of Hilo, 70% of the Kona Coast is rented on a vacation rental platform. So these are all homes that no local person oh. can afford. And you're also pushing up our rental price with that as well. So you know, that a vast majority of people in Hawaii rent and you can't find a rental for less than 1500 a month. Or if you have a family of say two or three and you need multiple bedrooms, you're looking at 2000 to maybe $3,000 a month in rent. So you're working three or four minimum wage jobs in the service industry 
And from there, people are just suffering. So I would say that that's one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with and trying to find holistic ways to to build truly affordable housing, but also to raise our living wage and make sure that people can thrive, not just try to survive here in our state. The second thing that I would also say, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that on today's podcast, but is the climate issue. As an island state, we are so deeply impacted by climate change. And I think for many people across the continent and, and across the globe, you're seeing the effect of climate catastrophe with the Lahaina wildfire. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who does want to donate, info is a really great place to find donation resources or possible volunteer opportunities. But that is just one of the small pieces of that's that's not only devastating and deadly, but the chain reaction of the climate catastrophe that's coming our way. Yeah. 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 I mean, those fires are was so shocking. I mean, it's was such an insane moment to see that happen. I mean, again, I live in California, so wildfires are kind of normal here. But to to see that happen in like a place like Hawaii was was wild and so catastrophic and, and sad. But beyond that, what other kind of climate impacts does Hawaii tend to see? Because you perfectly segued into this big topic we want to dive into around climate and why. So absolutely. First off, I'm I'm super glad that we're talking about this. I think Hawaii has a very small footprint when it comes to the the climate impact, but we're as an island state, we feel it so deeply. And Maui is just one small unfortunate way that we are we're experiencing the climate, the the devastation of climate change. But according to a report produced by the Hawaii Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation Commission, global sea level could could rise more than three feet by 2100. So with more recent projections showing even earlier, over the next 30 to 70 years, approximately 6,500 structures and 19,800 people statewide in Hawaii will be exposed to chronic flooding. So that includes over 700 Native Hawaiian cultural sites. So these are all a vast majority of our cultural sites are based right at ocean level. And with with this flooding that's going to be coming, it's so devastating to know that or to to imagine that so many of these places are going to be wiped out. And that and when you wipe out these these significant places in our culture, you're also wiping out our heritage and the ability for us to be able to treat to teach, I think, younger generations about our own history. And as Native peoples, that in itself, losing your history, is probably the most devastating impact of climate change. Climate change will also increase storms and hurricane activities, as we've just seen with Maui. And sea level rise will continue to increase coastal erosion. So our beaches, the thing that Hawaii thrives on, our our tourist economy that people love to come here and see parts of Waikiki and Kona are going to be underwater. So... I think that that in itself is, I think, kind of sums up some of the things that we're experiencing. In my district last year, there was a giant wave that came and crashed over a townhouse complex that's three stories high. So you're seeing this is this is just the tip of the iceberg, I think, when it comes to things like managed retreat and the things that our state is going to have to do in order to to stay afloat. Yeah. So, I mean, no matter which way you slice it, it's devastating. You know, every angle of this is heartbreaking in so many ways. And I guess, you know, the question, it's like, feel it feels like saying like, what are the solutions feels like so empty because it's like, we should be, we should have been working on this for so long and so ahead of this. So it's hard yeah, to- We're like, so far behind. So far yeah. behind. But like in this current situation, like what does some solution, some mitigation look like? Like what can we do to at least 
catch up a little bit? Well, I would say that our state is definitely not doing enough. And as you referenced, we're so far behind when it comes to solutions. I mean, at this point, it's not only mitigating, it's 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 surviving in some way because we know that with everything that's happened so far and the damage that's been done to the planet, all we can do is 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 retreat from the shoreline yeah. in many ways here in Hawaii. So having a managed retreat plan is something that we absolutely need. I think that's the holy grail of sea level rise. Hawaii has made significant progress in enacting a comprehensive managed retreat plan and program. Um, and I think overall, we should require all state and county plans to be updated to be to make sure that we're including a comprehensive managed retreat from our shorelines. Um, and that's really all we can do when it comes to surviving in many ways when it comes to sea level rise. We need to know that we have to relocate basic infrastructure outside of inundation zones. Many of our uh, resources right now are based, just like those cultural sites, right at sea level. So all of the other thing, too, in, in the state of Hawaii is that we import like 78% of the products that we use in the state of Hawaii are imported. So all of our disaster shelters, all of our, our shipping docks, all at sea level. So finding a plan to make sure that we're moving those folks and, and those really important spaces into safer zones, I think is, is, is so beneficial to our state and so necessary. Figuring out how much that will cost us and then how do we help vulnerable and impoverished communities deal with the transition and how can we also preserve some of our historic and our culturally sensitive spaces that are important to, to Hawaii and also to Native Hawaiians. But I think that having that managed retreat plan is incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. And it's so, again, wild. Like you said, it's like too late. And that we, like we're, we're talking about solutions for, you know, climate change right now. We're basically talking about like, how do we survive this versus like, how can we stop this? How can we prevent this? And yeah, it's just like really disheartening to hear, but that, yeah, we're in the state of like retreat versus like, how can we innovate? How can we prevent? How can we, you know, be proactive in stopping this? But I'm curious because one, one solution is passing a green new deal at the state level. So yes. we're curious and want to hear a little bit about that, especially kind of hearing it of how that can be implemented at a state level, because we always hear Green New Deal at the federal level, but to hear it potentially be implemented at the state level is really interesting. So we definitely want to learn more about that. Absolutely. And to be really honest, I think that there's there's not huge differences, right? Like it's this huge system that's been corrupt that we have to figure out how to how to work together in order to really form that Green New Deal. So I like talking about for me, replacing the corruption that's caused by corporate interests with a commitment to the public interest. And for us at the state level, I think that that is so core. You're like county officials and state officials, we're so close to the people that we represent and being able to get them on board and help them transition into a Green New Deal. I think for me, at, a, at the Green New Deal at its core is about protecting both people and our planet. So in order for us to be proactive here at the state level and to also benefit the federal level as well, we have to make sure that all of our community members are on board and understanding of what a Green New Deal is. So that's been one of the big projects that my office has focused on. I think there are certainly specific policies that are fundamental to a Green New Deal. And I think these are some of the things that most people would also agree on is it has to eliminate our reliance on fossil fuels and then also to advance clean energy. And then a Green New Deal also needs to entail substantial 
public investments in education and in green jobs initiatives. So as a member of the House Education Committee, that's been one of my big pushes. And as vice chair of the Higher Education Committee, really focusing on our local community colleges and helping people that are most vulnerable make that transition smooth. And this way that this way we're helping people also move from carbon heavy jobs to positions that prioritize environmental justice. And then I think at an economic level, it must come with like fundamental social safety protections for working families. And this is where, as chair of the Working Families Caucus, my heart really stings. We've been working on since I got elected, trying to make sure that we have things like paid sick and family leave, as well as a living wage for all. Single payer healthcare system that treats health as a human right is essential to a Green New Deal, because at the end of the day, we have to make sure that we are supporting people as they make this transition. And I think that that's one of the best ways that we can also support um, a localized version of a Green New Deal. So often people talk about labor and the environment as being opposites to each other, but that couldn't be further from the truth, especially mm-hmm. when you talk about a Green New Deal, because yeah. that's what it's all about. People have to be able to live. They deserve good job and they deserve to make sure that they have time to care for their families so that they have space and time as a family, as an ohana, to care for for our community and also for our environment and the planet. So those are those are a handful right. of things that I think are would be beneficial at a state level. Mm-hmm. And it's like so many things interlock with each other. And you know, everything's also always like a domino effect as well. But it's funny you say that because in terms of the labor and the green connection, is we had Blue Green Alliance on the show a while back and we're pushing some of their initiatives recently because they do such cool shit. And I was like, literally just thinking about like, wow, like this is the connection that is missing. Like these are the two movements that really need to come together. And there's obviously been some groundwork. There are orgs working in the space. It's not like, you know, if you work in politics, like, you know, it's there, but if you don't work in politics or touch it, you think they're totally separate and like have never met each other and would be complete strangers. And I just think it's like, this is the moment that we need shining lights on it and saying like, no, you guys, everyone needs to be hand in hand in this. Like what benefits people that are into the environment and climate also benefits people that want to be able to support their families and have good jobs. Like these are two things together. And it's an economic I'm just so excited that- It's a kitchen table issue. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, kind of diving into as well, like this conversation around- Climate and also tourism, which you touched on. I'm curious how those two issues intersect and basically kind of how tourism has benefited Hawaii, but is also detrimental to Hawaii in some ways. Can you kind of explain what that landscape looks like? Absolutely. Well, Hawaii sees over 10 million tourists every single year. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of people for like really tiny islands. Really small space. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and for reference for anyone who has never seen the little dot of Hawaii on a map, you could take our entire state and put it in Los Angeles County and Mm -hmm. still have space. So 10 million tourists for that tiny space is, it's a lot and it's overwhelming, not only for our people, but definitely for our natural resources. We even saw people flocking to our islands during COVID-19. Basically, when our state was closed entirely, we still saw tourists here and it was, it's very overwhelming, but we have tourists on our beaches, we have tourists harassing our bunk seals, we have tourists who are damaging our environment and our ecosystem in so many, in so many ways. And I think overall, from a, from a Native perspective, tourism is this very perverse form 
of extractive capitalism is what right. I would call it. And in so many ways, it's it's this space of continued colonization for so many Native Hawaiians mm-hmm. who don't have the time or space to go and enjoy a day at the beach with their families because they're too busy serving in the tourism sector and in the mm-hmm. tourist industry. And that's not to dissuade people from coming to Hawaii. It's just the, unfortunately, it's just the truth about, about tourism. With that said, now that I've been very negative, apologies to all the listeners, <laughs> the reality too is that Hawaii thrives off of tourism and that is our primary economic driver. So yeah. it was disappointing to me during the COVID-19 pandemic because we weren't able to diversify away from tourism. We, Our state, unfortunately, based its economic recovery off of the return of tourism. So while we had this golden opportunity, these two years basically of a lockdown where we were, we could have been able to reshape what tourism looks like, we didn't do that. Thankfully, we as a state are, are now starting to take steps towards what people are calling regenerative tourism, which in many forms I think is beneficial to climate change, helping tourists understand that when you come here, there are certain animals that you can't touch, whether you want it for your for your TikTok video or not, please don't touch the monk seals. So having these having these pieces in, in place, I think have been beneficial. But I think here in Hawaii, it's a it's definitely a love-hate relationship with tourism. You're relying on this thing. Yet at the same time, you know how harmful it is for you and how harmful it is for your family. Totally. And I'm like curious, like of during that two-year period, when new ideas especially could have taken off, like what would those sort of like replacement industries be? Like what are like some of the innovations of industry that do you think like could have been and maybe still could be, you know, it's like who's to say, but I'm just curious, like sort of where the mindset could have gone versus like where it's continued to roll. Absolutely. I think for me, one of the things that I loved about, there's many things that I love about New Zealand, but one of the things that I loved was in their economic recovery, they based a huge section of it on the arts. And for so many Native Hawaiians, there is this huge connection to art and culture and being able to, I think being able to relate and put so much more, I think, into our art art sector would have been so beneficial, not only for our people, but also for our state as a whole. And in some ways that also relates to tourism as well, or also being able to share some some different aspects of Hawaii that may not necessarily be related to extracting our natural resources, but helping people understand the culture and the history of this place. Yeah, so arts, energy is another one. There's so much that we have to do around creating more energy here and, and that transition and what that looks like for our people. And that's something that's also beneficial, not just to the tourism sector, but that's something that's beneficial to every single person that lives here in our in our state. Yeah, so that's just a handful of things I think that could have been yeah. that we could have worked on. Yeah, yeah, it's disappointing. It feels like a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm curious too, just kind of diving deeper into kind of the active capitalism, like you mentioned, when it comes to tourism, and especially when it comes to like humongous corporations coming in and buying land and building massive hotels and the like physical extraction from the land that that creates. And just like even beyond that, just kind of how big business comes into the state and is extractive. I'm curious at the state level if there are solutions or if there are things maybe in the hopper that are kind of like about regulating that and about kind of protecting, you know, the people of Hawaii over some of these big corporations. I don't know if there's if there's a big push there in the state legislature to to help solve for some of that. 
Yeah. You know, some of the biggest beneficiaries of our tourism industry is our hotel industry. So these are especially multinational hotels and corporations that are invested in visitors and in visitors coming to Hawaii. These are like really high-end boutiques or also what we call here in Hawaii real estate investment trusts So or REITs. So real estate investment trusts, these are the, these are the things that allow non-resident investors to profit off of our state's land without ever having to pay any taxes mm. or invest in our state. So these are things like if you've ever been to Hawaii, Ala Moana Mall is a real estate investment trust and the Hilton Hawaiian Village is also a real estate investment trust. And we have many, many, many of these places across the state. But one of the things we've been working on is trying to fix that loophole, that real estate investment trust loophole, so that if you are going to come and invest in, in Hawaii and then profit hugely off of it and off of our tourism industry, you're then going to have to pay at least those taxes that you're that are that you're owed to the state. Another big push that we've been trying to do to benefit tourism here is to create a green new a green fee, which it's so sad to me that we don't have a green fee here in the state. We have, where is my note? But state different countries have created a green fee, whether it's New Zealand or the Galapagos. And New Zealand, to me, I always use this as, a, as an example. They spend about $100 per tourist on natural resources that are going right back into, into their aina or into their land. And here in Hawaii, we spend $8 per tourist on regenerating these natural resources. So if we were to create a green new, a green fee, it's really exciting because every single cent of that money could go right back into our land. It could go into our the nonprofits that help benefit our land and benefit our resources. And it would help us better manage um, the over-tourism and the overpopulation of our state. So we've been trying very hard to work on a green fee. And that's probably one of the things that I'm most excited about. I'm hoping that we can pass it. I yeah. overall, I'd say that the public has been super supportive and we have incredible organizations that have really come together to push on this green fee. And yet it's still hard going back to that, that purple state. It's hard to get it through the legislature, but they've gotten really close in the last couple of years. Yeah. I have questions on the green fee and like how it would work and like how this type of thing operates. Like, is this like a fee, like a tourist pays essentially, like when they come to Hawaii, like, or, Okay. That answers part of my question. So, yes. so curious. Like, I know, like, in like a larger category, like now in the summers to come to go to Europe, there's a fee to be able to go to Europe, and you have to apply yes, for like a certain I saw that. Visa. Yeah, and I was like, oh, interesting. Like, glad I like figured this out before I planned any trips. Yeah, <laughs> which would be exactly my problem. <laughs> like, I'm going right back to the states. Awesome. But that aside, like, I was sort of curious, like, where those funds are going. And that's like a whole separate thing, but just as this example of like a fee upon sort of like the tourist that then goes back to the state is like the clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that essentially that's what a green fee is. It's money that in other countries, what they can do is they apply it to usually at the airport when you're coming in directly to that to that country, you can apply it at the airport. Because this is where this is our hiccup in the state, is that because you are or you, because we are a state within the United States of America, constitutionally, we cannot charge a fee to people coming into our state from like the continent. So that's our hiccup. So you have to do it in like really unique ways. So one of the things that we've talked about is trying to add it to a hotel fee because you can, you know, you'd apply that to everyone or a rental car fee has also come up. So adding that as an extra fee and it'd be like $25 a day which if you're getting insurance on your rental car, you're already paying. So 
why not pay that to to ensure that the the beautiful ocean or the beautiful hike that you're coming to see is still going to be beautiful whether or not totally. you know so no, that makes so that's where so much uh, sense yeah. because yeah. i like cuz then you like think about like when you like are just driving on the highway and you're going into like another state like you're on a toll road you're paying some sort of toll like i feel like that mm-hmm. sort of you don't even i mean you have to think about it obviously in terms of funds but you don't think about it mentally in terms of like this is so wild. This is so out of pocket to be a thing. It's like, yeah, that's the toll road. That's just what you do. And then you're investing in your state. So like something of that nature makes sense. And if it's applied to like something individually, like, yeah, you have to plan for it, but like, you're not going to feel it as much as like an upfront fee. So I think it just marketing wise, it's smarter anyway. Yeah. Essentially it's a user fee. So yeah. mm-hmm. if you're going to go to the beach, you'd be using this, you'd have to pay this fee in order to go. So it's like, it's like paying for parking. If you're going to be here, you should probably pay what for for the time that you're spending there, right? And for the resources that you're taking. I think the special thing about a green fee specifically is that it's money that's going directly. It's being collected for your presence, but it's going directly to organizations that are working specifically on trying to protect the environment. That's interesting. And so, just another clarifying question, and that is that also is a solution because is it not an option to really like regulate or do some type of something towards like the big corporations and hotels or like, is it? Yeah. Well, historically we've never had these types of fees. That's why for so many of of my colleagues, even though it seems like a no brainer, it's very strange. And oftentimes the rebuttal that we'll hear is that, well, if people have to pay a green fee to come to the state, then they're just not going to come. And that's why we spend here as as a state, we also spend millions and millions of dollars on what we now call the Hawaii Tourism Authority or HTA. So we have this very expensive industry that was basically designed to market Hawaii. Hawaii does not need to be marketed. Everyone knows where Hawaii is, what it is. Even if you can't locate it on a map, you know what it is and you've always probably wanted to come here. So it's it's to me, it's still this, it's overcoming these. This is where I think the corporate agenda with mm-hmm. tourism and with those large hotel industries, these are the people that are donating to my colleagues. Right. Yeah, so they, so sure so me and my colleagues, exactly. Mm-hmm. They have this vested interest in protecting the tourism industry. I mean, our Aina or our land is not donating to someone's campaign account. That's yeah. the whole thing that makes creating a Green New Deal difficult in so many ways. Not only is it this very intersectional piece of policy where you have to have multiple sectors working together to, to make it work, but it's also the people that that need the most help, that need the most protection are oftentimes the people that are not donating to someone's campaign. Sometimes they can't even vote because they're too busy working two or three jobs. Mm -hmm. The land that we need to protect, people always think it's just, it's just always going to be there. It's like that quote where I'm going to butcher it, but I think the the gist of it is that you, 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 people won't care about water until there's no water to drink. Yeah. And you're not going to care about the land until it's not there. So it's really being able to I don't want to say find a balance because it's not about finding a balance for my for so many of my colleagues that are maybe not supportive or don't care as much about a Green New Deal. It's about helping them understand that our resources are not infinite, mm-hmm. that we have to protect them and we have to be, we have to prioritize looking ahead in order to make sure that right. they, to make sure to, to, to be able to make sure that we have a planet to stand on. Yeah. And now like, I can never, will never be able to wrap my head around people who can't just think about 
that. And I'm like, I need a psychologist to come in and be like, is there just some like wiring issue in some of these people's brains that they can't think a little bit in the future and be like, oh shit, like my hotel is going to fall into the ocean if I don't do something about this. Like it's also Literally. like going to affect their business, Not let alone that's not even the most important part of this. It's obviously the people and the land and the environment, but it's like, even from a business perspective, it's not going to help you. So what? Come on. Anyways. This is why I have a therapist. This is definitely <laughs> yes. why I have a therapist. <laughs> Good. As you should, as we all do yeah. um, in this world that we live in. But Absolutely. thank you for coming on. Is there any kind of like closing notes about, especially with what's going on with Maui, anything else to uplift and just kind of any closing notes on on Hawaii and all of these topics that we covered? I think I have I have so many closing notes. We talked about so many incredible things on today's show. First off, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be able to share space with you folks. I hope you found our conversation helpful there. And I and I do want to, in so many ways, in in a handful of ways, apologize for I think the negativity of just the reality of what we're facing here in Hawaii when it comes to climate change. Yeah, it's hard yeah. not to be not to be sad. Yeah, um, but I think. One of the things that I've I've taken away from this position is that finding new avenues to work together are really how we're gonna how we're gonna save our planet um, and how we're gonna uplift people. And if you do want to donate to Maui, please please do so. We have so many people who have tragically lost their lives at the at this point in time. It's 115 individuals who have perished in the fire, and we still have hundreds more that are missing. So if you would like to donate to Maui and to support our ohana there please go to maui nui strong dot info or you can go to the hawaii community foundation dot org to to donate and this is i think one of the things that we can take away from maui is that it's not it's not just another wildfire similar to those in california as well they're not just wildfires these are climate catastrophes that could have been prevented yeah and with good policy we can make sure that they never happen again yeah, definitely. And we'll be linking all of the things too. So no need for anyone to, you know, memorize those links. We can link them <laughs> so everyone can go access. But thank you again so much for coming on this was, this was really great. Thanks for having me. 